So we have a, a lot of ground to cover here in Luke chapter 23, so go ahead and get ready again. The questions are on the screen, and we'll be starting in verse 32. Last week, uh, as you know, we're getting to the end of Luke's gospel. We've been here for a while, and we are now getting to the cross this morning. Last week, we were on the road to the cross, and we heard some surprising things, some surprising words from Jesus. However, this morning, we are at the cross. Jesus is being crucified. And as we read this morning, I want you to make a note. I want you to notice uh, some things about this passage this morning as we will soon read it together. The first thing that I want you to notice is, and this is what kind of struck me in, in studying the text this week, is just the lack of detail of the description of the crucifixion, crucifixion itself, right? The, just the lack of detail of what a crucifixion is and how it's done. You know, we, we don't get a detailed description of the hammer hitting the, the nails. We don't hear about the, the cries of the excruciating pain, which, by the way, that word excruciating literally means out of the cross or out from the cross. We don't hear a, a description of the thud of the cross as it's hoisted up and dropped into place for those being crucified to be hung all day. We don't hear any of that. We don't see any of those details. In fact, if you want those details, you have to go watch The Passion of the Christ and you'll get, you'll get those in, in detail. But we don't see that in our passage. However, the original readers of this text, they would have known instantly what the crucifixion was. They didn't need the description. They, they knew how gruesome it was, how excruciating and painful it was, how brutal it was. So the writer of, of this gospel and the other gospels, particularly this one's Luke, is they're not minimizing the physical pain that Jesus Christ, our Savior, endured on the cross. But what Luke wants us to see, and his hearers in the first century, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he wants us to see so much more. So, so first notice that, just the lack of the description of the crucifixion. Number two, notice the particular details that we do receive. Notice the details that we do receive, that he does tell us about the cross. And then as we read that, just kind of ask yourself the question, why? Why would he tell us these details? Why would he tell us about these particular things? Third, I want you to notice what Jesus says on the cross. Notice, hone in fast in what Jesus says on the cross and who he says it to. So these are, these are the very important words of Jesus. These are the two of the last three statements that Jesus makes on the cross before he dies. So let's look and let's read it together now. Verse 32. Verse 32. Two, other, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified. They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and were indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. I love this passage. It has a, a very special place in, in my heart as a, as a preacher. When I was in college, uh, from this text was where I wrote my first sermon. And it was the first sermon that I ever preached was from this text. And I got this great idea to take that one sermon and, and use it to hone in my skills of preaching. And so I used this sermon, that sermon I should say, over and over and over again as I preached in different churches throughout Northwest Florida, Central Florida, and things like that. God bless those churches who had to endure that time of my preaching. And be assured, my church, that I love you too much to have pulled that one out to deliver it to you this morning. Now, Luke may not be highlighting the gory details. Did you notice that? It was just one verse, and they crucified him. He may not be highlighting the, the gory details of that day, but he is showing us how the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion serve to do something. And that is, they serve to fulfill the scriptures. Let me show you. First, in verses 32 and 33, it says that the two other criminals, that there were two others, and they were criminals that had also been led away with Jesus that day. By the way, there was a third criminal, Barabbas, who was set free. Right, And so these two other criminals walking with Jesus were being put to death with him on that day. One crucified on his left, one crucified on his, on his right. Now, this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And we've read this before. It's in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, with the criminals. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. 
Jesus told us that this was going to happen in Luke 22, 37, when he was arrested. He quoted that verse saying that this is supposed to happen in fulfillment of the scriptures. Secondly, there's a fulfillment of the scriptures here in Luke 23, verse 34. When the soldiers cast lots and divide his garments, that was in fulfillment of Psalm 22, what we read this morning in verse 18, which says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Third, in verses 35 and 36, they tell us that the crowd, the rulers and the soldiers, were gathered around together, mocking him on the cross. And again, this is fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And later, in verses 16 and 17, For the dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones, stare and gloat over me. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It is pointing to the work of Christ on the cross. The scriptures were being fulfilled that day. So the details that we do get... You know, we're kind of expecting the gory details. But the details that he does give us are showing us the fulfillment of the scriptures. And why? Because he wants us, Luke, right? That's his intent. And the Holy Spirit is showing us and leading the people to what? To have a certainty in the word of God. To have a certainty in the scriptures. But also to have a certainty in Christ and who he is and what he is doing on the cross is in fulfillment of what God has predestined and what God has ordained. That's why those details are there. That's why we know that they're casting lots for his garments and the, the mocking is going on. He gives us those details so that we will have confidence in the word of God. To know that the sovereign will of God is over these events to the very last detail. They were ordained and decreed by God because this is what God has been doing throughout all of history to bring about the sacrifice of his son, the atonement for sin, and the forgiveness and salvation of his people. And that's what's at play in this passage. The forgiveness of sin in the redemption of sinners. And that's what it's all about. Yes, it was gory. Yes, it was gruesome and brutal. But it was about salvation. It's the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus' words on the cross tell us exactly that's the point. The story of the cross is a love story of how God has showed his love for his people. And there is no greater story in the whole entire universe that shows such great love and sacrifice. You know, we studied the, the love story, the hard love story, the bitter love story of Hosea. And all of that, that bitter suffering and rejection over and over and over again was all pointing toward the love story that is shown on the cross. A love for a people that would hate him. This is the story of love. And this is the deep and rich 
theology of the cross. A theology that hits close to our hearts and to our souls. A theology that we can feel. It's a theology that we can can feel. And it's right there in the words of Jesus. These are hard words to read when he's on the cross and not feel something. And not feel what he is saying. Words of love that forgive. And words of love that redeems a sinner. Look at verse 34. In verse 34, we see the first words of Jesus on the cross. Even in the midst of such torment and pain, even bearing the wrath of God upon him, Jesus speaks. He speaks and he says what? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What a prayer. How many of us have ever uttered such a prayer when facing such evil and torment? Who could? We can meditate on this prayer of Jesus as he is on the cross our whole lives, and I don't think we can ever mind the depth of what the Son is asking of the Father. We should try, but I don't think we'll ever get there. I'm not sure exactly what Jesus was praying for specifically or who he was specifically or how it should be fulfilled in a sense. We're not sure about those things. But I do know that forgiveness is the whole point of the prayer and it's the whole point of this passage. It's the whole point of the cross is forgiveness. And what a place for the Savior to pray such a thing. Think about it. They led him to a place called the skull. Hey, John, where are we going today? I thought about taking you to a place with a skull. Don't go. Not the place you want to go with somebody. It's not a good place. He's on the cross. He's between two criminals. His nails, his hands and his feet are nailed to the cross. And in the midst of that excruciating torment and pain, bearing the wrath of God, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he prays that knowing that his father would hear his request one way or another because he is merciful and he's loving and he is forgiving. You know, there's no clearer picture of the beauty of Jesus Christ's love, mercy, and compassion for a sinner. And there is no greater example of the love of God than right here on the cross and what is found in these words. In these words, there's no anger, there's no regret, there's no malice, there's no revenge or hatred, but only love and a desire for forgiveness of his tormentors. Concern not for himself, but for the souls of wicked men. The soldiers, they were wicked. They were sinful. They had 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 absolutely no care, no thought, no concern at all to the things of God. And they were clueless to who they were killing. They were clueless to whose garments they were casting lots for. They were clueless to who they were tormenting with sour wine to quench his thirst. They were trying to trick him into that. 
They were clueless to who they were mocking, calling him the king of the Jews, but really this is the king of kings, the creator of the universe. And they were clueless, utterly clueless to who they were tempting to save themselves, not save himself, not knowing that Jesus is the only hope for the world and their only hope as well. And if Jesus saved himself, there would be no salvation for any of us. They were clueless, ignorant, but nevertheless, they were wicked and sinful, heaping up condemnation and damnation for themselves. But Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for, I know, for they know not what they do. But it's not just the soldiers. It's not just the Gentiles, but the crowds were there, and they were silent. And there were the, the rulers there, and they weren't silent. They continued to mock at him. They continued to scoff at him, which means they, they ridiculed and they turned their nose up to him, to him saying, you look, look at him now. Look how unholy, look how abhorrent he is. But look at what they, what he, they say. They said, say, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he's the cho this, his chosen one. Do you hear the irony of their words? They said, he saved others. Even they could not deny the overwhelming evidence that for three years Jesus had been saving others. That he'd been healing the sick and the paralyzed, restoring the sight of the blind, even raising the dead. And how about the conversion and transformation of so many. From prostitutes to tax collectors like Zacchaeus. He saved others. But none of that would carry any weight with them. Their hearts were hard. They were lost. They were blind. And so they didn't believe. And the only way that they said that they would believe is as if supernaturally the nails would come out of his hands and the nail would come out of his feet and Jesus would be removed from the cross and he would start floating around everywhere and saying to them, see, you believe now? And the truth is they probably wouldn't have believed even then. And despite the irony of their confession, there's also the unintentional truth that came into their request. You see, the fact of the matter is, Jesus that day could not save everyone. There would be one that would have to die. He could either save sinners, or he could have saved himself. He could either have died in your place so that you might go free, so that you could be forgiven, so that you can be with him in paradise, or he could save himself and left you to perish in your sin. So here is the Son of God, hanging on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God for our sins, and we hear a Savior who is fixed, fixed on saving others, forgiving others. And why? Because he is truly the Messiah. Because he truly is the Christ, the, the chosen one, the anointed one of God. He truly is the king of G the Jews. And more than that, he is the king of kings. 
He didn't save himself that day because he was accomplishing on the cross what he came here to do. And he was obedient to the will of the Father even unto death. Death on a cross. And when he prayed that day, that was the point. Because the point of the cross is about our forgiveness. The point of the sovereign will of God to bring his son to the cross was to accomplish our forgiveness from sin. It's the whole point. So that we would be forgiven my sin, your sin. That of sinners who are wicked and ignorant and sinful and gross as the soldiers were, or as uppity and, and self-righteous and religious as the, re, the rulers were that day, so that they too could be forgiven, so that they too could be reconciled with God, so that we too, like them, could be reconciled with God and forgiven by God. And this is the theology of the cross. This is what the cross is all about. Let me, let me show you further from the New Testament. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the cross, without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him, in Christ... We, those who are in Christ, have what? Redemption. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness. You see that? The forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. So we see throughout the cross, right? This whole story is all about the sovereign grace of God to save wicked men. And wicked women, whether they are the soldiers or whether they're the self-righteous, uppity, religious type, whoever you may be, whatever your sin may be, the Father is, is, is working in Christ to forgive us of our sins. And he has accomplished that perfectly in the cross. Bought you from death to life. Redemption. It gets even better. Colossians 1. Verse 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? To the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Wow. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, listen, God made alive together with him. All right, that's the unity in Christ that we have. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, all, all, past present, future, all. By how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside doing what? Nailing it to the cross. Huh. 
God didn't just say it. All is forgiven. No, he paid for it in the cross. Legally, it had to be paid for, and he paid for all of it. Not just in the physical pain again, but bearing the full wrath that was due toward the sinner. Toward the wicked, toward the dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in the flesh. He bore all that wrath in of himself so that we could be justified before him and forgiven, nailing it to the cross. This is the theology of the cross. It's just this, that Jesus is there to accomplish for us the forgiveness of sin of your sin, of my sin, all of it. I think for many of us that we have this, we have this scale in our minds, a scale, right? It's a scale. A scale in our minds of our sins, and our sins are on this side, and, and it's so heavy. It's so heavy. When we begin to think of all the things that we have done to break the law of God, to, to sin against God, and it's heavy, and we are unable to balance it out no matter what. No matter what we try, that scale just keeps going down and further down and further down. But what we see in this passage, what we see in Luke and what Christ has accomplished is that the Christ of cross completely outweighs all of your sin. And it has brought forgiveness a forgiveness that means completely. It means completely forgiven. And he just doesn't balance the scale back out. That's not what he does. That's not what the cross does. It doesn't just balance it out. He has removed everything on this side, and he has put it on himself. He's put it on himself. He took our trespasses, and he took our sin, and he bore them on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Because forgiven to the Lord actually means forgiven. Sanctification, I heard this quote one time, and this is pretty good. It's not mine, it's someone else's. I can't tell you who it is. But. Sanctification every day is remembering that your justification is in Christ and not in you. It's remembering that you have been forgiven. That you have been redeemed by the perfect work of Christ on the cross if you are in Christ. So the first words of Jesus on the cross as he is in torment and excruciating pain is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The next thing that he gives us is in verse 43. His next words. The cross was about accomplishing redemption of a sinner, the forgiveness of sins, and that's what we hear Jesus say on the cross. But he says something else at the end of the passage with, with to, this, to one of the criminals. And we all know what it is at this point. We read it. We just read it. And I tend to think that this criminal is an answer to that prayer, that he is the first answer to that prayer as along with the rest of us, for those who are in Christ and have been forgiven. All the Gospels tell us that Jesus was hung on the cross between two criminals who were guilty. They were worthy of the capital punishment that they were receiving. It's also worth noting 
that Matthew and Mark even tell us that initially both of the criminals were reviling and they were mocking Jesus just like everyone else. It's funny how the most guilty a person is, or the more guilty a person is, the loudest that they are to point out the guilt in other people's. Other people. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's hard to believe that a man clearly in his last heartbeats and in his last breaths that the Lord has given him would use those to revile and to rail insults at the Son of God. And this, again, it, it reveals the hardness of the human heart, the dead in our trespasses and our sins, as Colossians 2 is telling us. This is something of the hardness of the human heart that is set against the grace of God. And yet this is hard to fathom because we would want to believe that this guy on the cross that's railing toward the Son of God and, and mocking the Son of God would say something like that. I mean, we, we just kind of want to think that that's rare. He's a criminal. He's different. He's bent toward evil. So, of course, he's going to say the things that he is saying. But the truth is, a man will die. A man will die the way that he lived his life outside of the work of the grace of God. Hearts do not, on their own, get softer over time, they only get harder. Even in churches people who have called themselves Christians, who have no transformation, their hearts do not get harder even in it. Through the preaching of the word, their hearts will still get hard. It's what sin does. They do not get softer but harder. But it's the second criminal that we see something different. Remember what I said in, in Matthew and in, in Mark? He was just like him. I mean, he's railing at Jesus, he's mocking Jesus, but... Luke tells us that something happens. Something happens. Somewhere, somewhere in the point of the day, whatever hour it was, who knows? The other criminal looks over at the other one, and there's a completely change in tune. Look at verse 40. Look what he says. He says, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something has changed. Something clearly has changed this man. Before he was angry, he was mad at the world, he was blaming everyone for his guilt, even Jesus. But not anymore. He's changed. Changed by what? Maybe the, maybe the sermon that Jesus preached along the road to the skull, to the place of the skull, maybe that finally sunk in. And maybe it was the demeanor of Jesus on the cross. Maybe it was the words that Jesus prayed, even though he's witnessing all the tormenting and the mocking that's taking place uh, to Jesus. We don't know what exactly what particular thing might have stirred in his heart, but whatever it is, certainly something quite clear is that genuine conversion has taken place. A changed heart, a work of grace by the Holy Spirit. 
even on the cross. Let me give you a couple evidences of that conversion. First, hear the rebuke, right? He, he rebukes the other criminal. And I think he rebukes this other criminal because he actually has a genuine concern for this guy. He has a genuine concern for this guy who still has a hard heart and is blinded to the truth. And there is an evidence of grace to care enough for someone else to rebuke them when they are blind to their sin and to their guilt and to point them to the gospel, to Jesus. Second, we see in this man a confession of his own guilt. I mean, he flatly lays that one out. He admits that, that they both, including him, they justly deserve the penalty of death, that they deserve condemnation. They even deserve the judgment of God. He's saying we are, we are reaping what we sow, but this man, he's innocent. Brothers and sisters, as hard as it may be, and as much as it may hurt to see our guilt and our sin as it truly is, however hard it is, this is an evidence of grace. This is an evidence of God's grace in our life that when we can see our sin and we can admit it and we can confess it. And what this criminal shows us on the cross is something very rare but it is a work of God's grace. The third evidence is, is that we see God's grace in him to confess and believe in Jesus, that he actually trusts in him. Verse 42, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, which by the way, Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal is confessing his faith in Jesus. That he is the only one, that Jesus is the only one who has the power and the will to save him. Not to save him from the cross, because he knows that's what he deserves, and that's where he should be for who he is and what he has done. Not from the cross, which is what the first criminal, that's all he cared about. But the second criminal, he cared about one thing, and that is to be with Jesus, to be with the king. All he wanted was to be with Jesus and in his kingdom. And what grace and mercy came to him that day. What an amazing thing. What an unwasted life of that, to that point. To spend his whole, his whole life in rebellion and as a criminal, and to be crucified, and yet in the last moments, God would give him the grace to see his sin, to confess his sin and belief in Jesus Christ, to be crucified right next to the Savior, to have the scales of his heart to be removed and confess his faith in Christ. This is conversion. This is what the gospel does. It, it brings about a complete and utter change, even if it was for just a couple of hours. What grace, what mercy. And you know why I love this passage? Because it's salvation and conversion that's complete, and it's just simple. It's not all mucked up with, with, with confusion. It is just a sinner confessing 
his sin and his need for Christ and trusting in Christ that he is the only one that could save him. And God grants that prayer. He grants that need. And however, the criminal, his, the change is a huge part of the story, but it's also not really the complete point because the point of the cross is salvation and forgiveness, but accomplished by who? Jesus. And look what Jesus says in verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal asks for mercy. He asks for mercy so that when, when Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, give me mercy. Now here's what he's asking. He is asking Jesus that when you come back into your kingdom, so the second coming, when you come back, even though I'm going to die today, however long it is before you come back, would you remember me? Would you remember me? That is the, that is the, the Jewish mindset at the time. That at the end of the age, when you come as the judge of the world, remember me and count me as one of the just. That's what he's expecting. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, remember nothing. I don't have to remember anything because you will be with me today. You will be with me today, not later, not in time to be a certain time to be determined, not at the second coming, not in the resurrection, but you will be with me today. Now, how in the world can Jesus say that? How in the world could Jesus say that? And here's why. The cross. Because what the cross is accomplishing, because of the cross, in his death, he is doing what? He's conquering death. In his death, he is conquering death. And what is death? Death is the wages of sin. And Jesus is conquering that completely. And he's obliterating that. The wages of our sin is death. The curse of sin, right? Since Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is conquering it on the cross. And so when he says, you will be with me today, why? Because the cross is conquering death. And it is conquered completely in Christ. And those who are in Christ, what is he saying to us? We don't have to wait until judgment or the resurrection to be, to, to be with him. Why? Because death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You have been conquered. And this is the Christian hope accomplished on the cross. His death has, has conquered death. That's why when we go to a Christian funeral, we can rejoice because at their final breath, and at the last time that they close their eyes, immediately they're with Jesus. Immediately are they in paradise. And why? Because at the cross, Christ has conquered death. So, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh death, where is your victory? And the second thing he tells this man, that not only today you will be with me, but he said, you will be with me in paradise. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is alluding back to the garden. He is alluding back to the garden. In fact, that's the, the root meaning of the word is garden. 
And it represents this, this bliss and joy of God's people as being restored with him. In other words, it's a descriptive word for, for heaven. And in this one sentence, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus reveals more to us about the doctrine of the immediate state than all of the Old Testament. Because he is telling us the place where God dwells and where the, where the souls of Christians go prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the great resurrection. We, we look forward to that. We look forward to the return of Christ and he comes and he makes all things new. But until then, if we die, we have the hope that immediately today we will be with him in paradise. And not because of us, but because our sins have been completely wiped away by Christ on the cross who has conquered death perfectly. And when we breathe our final breath, if you are in Christ, and when your eyes close for the last time, immediately you will be with him in paradise. And that goes to the very biggest part of this whole sentence. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not Ben. With Jesus. It's the most important words that he says to the dying criminal. You will be with, with me in paradise. Those two first promises are just amazing. In fact, it completely changes everything about how we, we look at death. It changes it all. But, but the, the great promise that we see here is, is not just being in, in heaven or in paradise where there is no sin and there is no pain and no death and there's this celestial sea and streets paved with gold and angels singing. As great as it is, the emphasis of what Jesus says to the criminal is, you will be with me. You will be with, with, with me. And if you are with me and if you are with him, that's what makes paradise paradise. What makes paradise paradise is Christ. Jesus gives that unending joy. He gives that pleasure and that sanctification or that, that satisfaction. Heaven will be great, but it will not be great without Jesus. It is great because of him. Listen, you can go to the White House and you can visit the White House and the White House is great. It's a beautiful home. It's pretty. It's nice. But what makes the White House the White House, the president? Otherwise, you'll just be driving through the country and see a White House and they would look about the same. What makes the White House the White House is the president. What makes heaven heaven is Christ. And if you're in Christ, we get him. Brothers and sisters, don't sing of the great things of heaven without magnifying Christ. Don't share the gospel and all the blessings of heaven without proclaiming the Savior who has accomplished our redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Which, by the way, that's not a joy just for heaven. It's a joy that we can experience now. Because today, if you are in Christ, you have received the Spirit of Christ. And He is dwelling in you. And His Spirit lives in us. We are united in Him. We have the Spirit of adoption as sons. Now, not later. You see, the good news of the Gospel, very simplified, is this. And it's what this guy received and what was understood that day, is that the good news of the gospel is that we get God. And the way that we get God 
has all been accomplished by God. We get him through Christ, who has accomplished the forgiveness of our sin, the redemption, our redemption. Now let me ask you a question. Could you be happy in heaven, free from suffering and sadness, walking streets of gold, reunited with family and friends, even if Jesus was not there? Our highest hope and our joy is being with Jesus. And there's nothing that can compare to that. The great joy that that man experienced that day was Jesus. So could you imagine that day when they died? When they died on the cross, immediately both of them are greeted in paradise. He walks in. Jesus, sinless son of God, who just accomplished salvation, that's been long expected from the very beginning. The angels rejoice and heaven exclaims that the king is returned. And then this criminal walks beside him. Talking about being out of place. How awkward that could be. But the point of this whole passage here, the reassuring Christians is this not according to the sovereign grace of God who has predestined before the foundation of the world that even this criminal moments before his final breath would have the grace to have the scales be lifted from his heart and to confess faith in Christ on the cross. Two things that we sing in that first psalm this morning. My unworthiness and my worth my unworthiness to be there, and my worth in the righteousness of Christ. And if this isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, then I don't know where else to tell you to look. You see, everything we saw and heard Jesus do on the cross is exactly the same thing he has provided for you and me. We are all sinners, like, like the criminal, having willingly and eagerly broke God's law, all deserving death for our sin. And yet what Jesus prayed that day, and as he suffered on the cross, is what has been predestined also before the foundation of the world. That sinners like you and like me can look to him and be forgiven. To be forgiven of our sins. Have you repented like the thief, like the criminal, like the murderer? You see, the good news is, is even today, you can still look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not too late to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and to have faith in him and repent of your sin. And like the criminal that day, you can have the immediate assurance that so many in this room have this morning and have been reassured this morning that your hope of eternal life and paradise rests not in you, but in the person and work of a Savior, of a King, of Jesus Christ, whom God sent to bring about the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of his people. If you would confess your sins, believe in Christ as the thief did that day. Salvation and eternity with God 
can be had. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the cross. So what assurances we have that we could be forgiveness, forgiven of our sins. You, you prayed it there. You prayed it there. What joy that can be known to us, the forgiveness of our sins, our redemption, our reconciliation with you that has all been accomplished on the cross. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, that doesn't know you, that hasn't confessed Christ, maybe has believed these things in some way, but hasn't confessed Jesus in the way that maybe this criminal has. And we pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in, in a way, Lord, that they would. Come to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. Oh God, we give you the glory for the cross. We give you the praise for our salvation. To which we could not accomplish. But you have so richly provided. And so we pray, oh Lord, that you would use our time of response in these questions now to prick our hearts and continue the conversation of, of what it means to be in Christ and the good news of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.